Hi, I'm Benjamin Light. Hi, I'm Marcus Sparks. Hey, I'm Heather Hogan. Hello there. We have a special guest today on the Headcanon podcast. Heather from uh, autostraddle.com and the internet is here with us. <laughs> Heather from the internet. From the general internet. Heather from Twitter. So pleased to have you with us. So uh, as I've seen from your Twitter, you're apparently like a like a a high level dragon in the Harry Potter world. You know everything. So <laughs> I just love it. I don't know everything, but I sure do love it. <laughs> well, this is going to be fun because neither of us. I mean, I like Harry Potter, but I can't really claim to be like like totally in on like the fandom. You know, there's probably lots I don't know about it. So it'll be good to get like kind of more of an insider take on things. Cool. And I've seen the movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marco has not read the books except for I've read the last Marco. one. I read the last book. Yeah. Oh, it's inexcusable. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm performing some kind of spell on society of just bad taste. Mm-hmm. <laughs> today we're going to be talking about Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, this is my favorite of the movies. I don't know about you guys, um, but yeah, let's jump right in. Um, We'll do, uh, I guess everyone can kind of do their opening statement, and we'll talk about our favorite moments. I uh, should mention this is directed by Alfonso Coron, written, written by uh, Steve Close again. Heather, would you like to go first? Yeah. Um, so this also is my favorite of the Harry Potter movies. Um, I think it's it, it does one of the worst jobs adapting the book to the screen. But <laughs> I think as a standalone film... Um, it is the best of the entire series. And I think it did a really cool thing in elevating the movies to uh, just kind of breaking them out of a very uh, childlike setting and really elevated them as an art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, it's just one of those movies that I can just watch over and over and over again and love it. And I'm actually a, a big fan of, I, I don't need like a Slavic devotion when my books are devoted. I just want to get the spirit of the movie uh, from the book on the movie, and I feel like this movie really does that. So yeah, I love it a lot. I remember this movie like very fondly, but last night I sat down to watch it, and oh my god, it was so much better than I remembered. Like yeah. this movie is such a treat to watch, and and I all enough, I had just read a thing of J.K. Rowling, or I guess Rowling is perhaps how it's pronounced, where um, <laughs> there's no T, it's Voldemort, um, where she basically told Quran like you can change certain things from the books as long as you capture the spirit, and I feel like he absolutely did that. Plus, it has time travel and Hermione, which are just two things that make anything great. And you have to love any movie that begins with a young wizard practicing like metaphorical light masturbation under a blanket <laughs> at home <laughs> before the credits even roll. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I love this movie. I mean, to me, this movie stands on its own apart from the rest of the the franchise as just like a great film. Um, it's just like it's alive with like the energy of youth in a way that I don't think any of the other movies were able to capture so much. It's just like physical and tactile, and the camera is just like very like almost excited the way it moves around constantly. There's all these kind of trick shots. It it has a magical quality to it. Um, but I think that all kind of serves as like a backdrop for like these really kind of big emotions. It's like it takes that that sense of the novels uh, and kind of the the emotions of Harry's loss and, you know, you know, tragedy of his parents and whatnot. And it it makes them feel as big as they do in the book. Uh, so uh, top three moments, I guess we should get into. Yeah. Heather, what do you, you think? Guys, you guys go first on your top three moments. Did you? Uh, one of mine is when. 
Lupin shows up after this is when they're in the shrieking trap, shrieking shack. Uh, and Lupin shows up and he disarms Sirius. And then there's kind of like about a minute or two where you're not sure if maybe Lupin is like a villain and in league with Sirius. And those two actors are just, they're vampy. And I mean, they're like, they're chewing each other's scenery. They're having a, a hell of a good time. You can tell. I mean, they're, and, they're the way they play off each other. And I noticed rewatching it, that the shrieking shack is actually moving subtly in the background, which makes it even more disorienting. And mm. it really feels like they're, they're just in a competition to see like who can sell their lines the most. And it's really fun. Like it's, it's so it's, it's big, but it's not over the top. That is actually one of my, my top three moments too. It's, <laughs> it's the, but not just that it's cause I mean, I really thought, okay, when Lupin makes a comment about like finally the flesh like shows the madness of Finn and and Sirius is like well you know all about that and I was just like oh my god they're in love mm-hmm. um, <laughs> they are was, in love they're yeah in that love. was my first thought I I just I thought that was what the reveal was going to be not just that they were friends but they were together or something um, oh my god I love you so much right now I've never <laughs> loved you more than I do right now <laughs> I mean that's would I mean especially with the way uh, Lupin talks about his quote unquote condition at the end isn't that like the metaphor though I mean right it feels like coded Davis yes I always thought that Sirius was into James uh, Potter personally but yeah I can see it for Lupin as well <laughs> well it, there is that too Harry you look just like your dad except you have your mom's eyes which is ruining it for me no uh, the... <laughs> also you're 12 years old <laughs> <laughs> but like there's also there's that there's but there's also this constant adult drama of which the three kids who are the main characters are now just witnessing like the old rivalries and like click wars of like whatever class of Hogwarts this is playing out. Oh, well, and then Snape shows up and <laughs> then Snape shows up, then Peter Pettigrew shows up and it's like I mean like I wanted them to like argue over a yearbook or something. I don't know. I just I love like for a second, like like you just they should have cut to like Harry and like Ron and Hermione just like like looking to the left, looking to the right, looking to the left, looking to the right. What's going on? Who's with it? <laughs> Did he kill that guy? Yeah, it's actually my number three moment, but just from a slightly different uh, filter, I guess. So my number one favorite moment from this film is when Alan Rickman as Snape walks into the Defense Against Dark Arts class and says, <laughs> turn to page 394. It's just like <laughs> the most epic moment of all the Harry Potter movies. And I love it so much. <laughs> I love the way he uses his wand to shut all the drapes as he walks in. Yes, yes. It's so... Like Alan Rickman, there's never, there will never have ever been another Snape. There was only one person that could play it. It was Alan Rickman, and he just, oh, he's just so good in this movie. <laughs> I love in that scene how he asks a question, and then he's like, "Oh, nobody," and then Hermione answers and gets in trouble for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Snape. Yeah. Well, I had to wonder, is like Hermione like a, a more sociable version of Snape as a youth, possibly? How dare you? <laughs> I got the love and then I lost it. Hermione's a Gryffindor. <laughs> and she's like the most compassionate, empathetic character in those books. Like her whole thing is like muggle wizard relations. And mm-hmm. Snape's a real asshole about tell muggles. Me, tell me Snape deep down doesn't have love to give. Well, you've yeah. seen the last movie, you know. Yeah. 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 If, after all this time. Always. Always. <laughs> I'm going to cheat a little and kind of combine two into one. Um, there's this really amazing shot where it's at the end of the movie when uh, Harry and Hermione are running back into Hogwarts and the camera moves up through the clock tower face and we see them run down the hall uh, and they run up to Dumbledore 
and they're just like we you know he's free we did it and dumbledore just says did what and like pieces out like, it's a totally <laughs> awesome dumbledore moment I, I love that they they have him be so kind of like sassy and and funny um and then did when what? they Good night. <laughs> when they run in and ron starts like freaking out about how you know like what's going on and you're here then you're over there and harry kind of like jokingly mimics hermione's kind of speech he's like honestly ron how can somebody be in two places at once like i always <laughs> love that he it's like he he's self-aware and aware enough of Hermione to like know her mannerisms and make fun of her. Mm-hmm. Oh, so the one was my number three. My number one is actually Harry looking for, for Peter with the Marauders map. And there's this like merging of how to effectively show fear along with like the ideas and the perspective. I felt like we're docked by clever storytelling and like info downloads. Like we know about werewolves and animages via Hermione and, and Lupus in class and Snape. And thanks to the night bus, there's a thing on where like you can miss something if you're not looking at, if you expect it to be on your level, like the guy has to look down, you know, to see Harry. But just the fact that Harry, like he's like looking around and the map doesn't make sense. The things just pass him. And he sees his own reflection, which freaks him out. And then of course, what would next show up on that map? is like Snape is approaching <laughs> like a little like video game avatar Chevron of footsteps approaching. And then of course you have the, the weird rivalry between Lupin and Snape that's playing out in front of Harry in this darkened hallway. And I just, I don't know. That scene is so wonderful to me. Okay. I have a question for you. As somebody who hasn't read the books in mm-hmm. that scene, did you start to suspect Lupin? Uh, no, I, su- I suspected hmm. him of being a really cool guy, the way okay. he like, basically <laughs> shoves it in like Snape's face. Like, oh, obviously, this is just a map designed to insult whoever's trying to snoop around in it or whatever. There's all these like just like coded like jabs at each other. Um, well, when I, when I was watching it last night, he shows up when Peter Pettigrew was on the map and he kind of lurks out of the shadows. And there's something like vaguely, vaguely sinister about the way he's being portrayed in that scene. I kind of think that's what they're going for there i guess if he hadn't read the books was to like maybe start to suspect lupin a little bit at that point i can see it i mean i don't know that i felt that but i can see it <laughs> okay <laughs> fair enough <laughs> now there what's your number two uh my number two is uh kind of what you were saying at the beginning of your thing is that this movie gives you a scope for um hogwarts in a way that the first two movies don't like i think the first two movies do a good job of being like look at this cool castle with the moving staircases but the way that this movie comes outside of the castle and it gives you a scope for the Hogwarts grounds and, and for Hagrid's cabin and even for Hogsmeade. Like I think the, the scenery in Hogsmeade mm-hmm. is beautiful. And I actually love all the transition shots um, with the uh, Whomping Willow mm-hmm. uh, changing seasons, you know, and I just, I love that. Like I love the way that that works and I love the way that uh, the film just takes what's inside the castle and just, really makes it truly like magical out into the world in a way that I feel like the second two movies didn't. Well, and, and links it all too. Like sets yes. are linked together. Yes. Well, I think I read that they shot a lot more on location for this movie and it, you can tell like the movie just like in the first two movies that you kind of got the feeling that like Hogwarts wasn't real or like it was on a back lot or something like that. But in this it's like it feels like it's a real place that you could go to the right. way that the camera moves in and out of it. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's see. My uh, other moment, it's just a minor one, but I laugh every time. Uh, it's when Hermione puts the time turner around her and Harry, and he starts to, like, poke at it, and she slaps his hand away. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. They, there's so much physicality in the acting, and I, it's the characters, I mean, they really, obviously, they're older, and whatever Quaron did with them, like, to work with their characters, the acting is, like, so much improved in this movie. 
Like they really feel completely lived in. Right. He made them write essays. Yeah. <laughs> he did. That's true. He did make them. But only Emma Watson did it. Yeah. <laughs> Rupert Grint's just like, I don't think Ron would do that. Right. Or, or it's like, <laughs> wonderful. You get it. <laughs> uh, my number, well, number number two, which is my number three now. Uh, I'm going to cheat and just say basically everything time travel with Hermione and Harry. Like, that Hermione is like by now, for as much as you can be, an experienced time traveler. Like, it's just she gets it right away at Dumbledore's message. Here's what we have to do: three turns. They actually run past a clock, and the camera takes us through a clock. In case you're not getting what they're doing, but just watching them. I mean, I know some people complain about it; it doesn't work on film. But I thought it absolutely worked watching them watch themselves and interact with themselves. It reminded me so much of movies that I see try to do that, like uh, Time Crimes or uh, there's an indie movie called Primer. Plus, I just love time travel. And they're they're fantastic, especially like when you get the little moment where they see Draco running away from having mm-hmm. gotten punched in the face, and he's just like, "Not a word of this, you hear?" <laughs> like I just love it. It's like a great callback to that moment. And Hermione's just kind of like, "Yeah, he did that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think time travel is a really fun thing in this book too. I do love that throwaway line in the Order of the Phoenix where it's like, "And then all the time turners were destroyed forever, and no one ever time traveled again." <laughs> <laughs> so my third favorite moment is when Hermione punches Malfoy. Yes. And I love it because in the book, she kind of just slaps at him. Mm. But in the movie, she just like fully punches him. And I read a, uh, an interview with Tom Felton, who plays Draco Malfoy recently. And he said that when they were like preparing for the scene, he was like, um, just give me a stage slap, like just to kind of get in, like to see what it feel like. And she like really slapped him like really hard in real life, like right across the face. <laughs> <laughs> well you know that in that scene when he punches him i think you actually hear like his head hit the stone wall behind him like, like yeah that was a serious punch <laughs> ha, a serious punch mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it felt good though <laughs> all right so the next segment here is kind of like you know complaints or issues whatever i all mine are really nitpicks i feel like this movie is almost perfect but um I'll throw one out. Uh, it wasn't a huge fan of the kind of design of Lupin's werewolf form. I mean, it was okay, but it was, I don't know, nothing particularly interesting to me. Hmm. What would you, like, what would you rather have seen, like, compare it to some other werewolf I would have seen? I guess just more wolfish. Like, it kind of just seemed like a a gangly humanoid looking thing that's a little bit hairy. Like in True Blood, where it's just, like, straight wolves? Or yeah, something some somewhere between that. I guess it didn't seem very wolfish at all to me. I think when you talk about werewolves in cinema, there's like really two things. There's like what you're talking about, which is like the actual full form werewolf. And then there's like the transformation sequence. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm just flashing back to like is it American Werewolf in London, you know, which it's it's gruesome, like skin ripping and falling away. And I wanna say I think that the actual form of the werewolf in that movie was probably more like what you're talking about. Like it was clearly not like a normal wolf, but it wasn't as humanoid, like hunched over as this mm-hmm. one's. Yeah. What about you, Heather? Any uh, complaints or nitpicks about the movie? I have two. Like I have my two big complaints with this movie are number one is like the firebolt story in mm. the book is actually a huge thread of the book. Like Harry gets the firebolt immediately after his is destroyed, and then. Uh, like 
Hermione turns him into McGonagall because she's afraid it might be hexed and then like and you know and then like Hermione and Ron have this big falling out because mm-hmm. of it. It's actually a huge thread of um, character development in the third book, and, and I understand that that's um, not. I'm, I know they can't get that into the film, but that was kind of one of my complaints. Um, and also, everything about the firebolt drove me crazy. Like, I hate the way the movie ends. The movie is so <laughs> beautiful and nuanced, and it ends with Harry like coming at you yeah. on that firebolt. I just hate <laughs> it so much. Yeah, it's like a, a strangely like dissonant ending. Like, it's yes, dude on a freeze is. frame. It's like what? Yeah. yeah, it really is. I saw this movie at midnight at midnight in the theater, and everybody was like so psyched and super into it. And then the theater just like devolved into laughter at the end of the movie because it was just like <laughs> such a weird ending. <laughs> it's it's very different, but in a way, it reminds me of the end of uh, I don't I don't know. Have you seen the new Mad Max movie? I don't want to spoil anything. Oh yeah, I um, love that movie. It ends. Mad Max Fury Road ends with like this weird quote at the end. Yeah, it's, it's very like weird. totally like what the hell is this? Yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh, um, so my only other nitpick about this movie, and I I hate that this is a nitpick because I really do love the masturbation allegory at the beginning of the film. Oh, like yeah. I think that's really hilarious. Mm-hmm. But also like. Harry can't do magic at home. Like, he can't do magic at home. He's That's, like, a huge part of some, you know, like, the coming stories is that he can't do magic in his house. Mm-hmm. I know that's ridiculous. And I do love, I do love what's going on there. But, uh, okay, I have, a, I have a book nerd question for you. Yeah. Uh, so, Harry gets in trouble in book two because Dobby does the magic and they're like, right. oh, magic was done at this house. How would that work in, like, the burrow at the Weasley's house? So, uh, J.K. really answered this question, like, during the, I don't know, between, like, the fifth and sixth book. And what mm-hmm. she said was that, that the magic tracer works for a location, so it doesn't work for a specific person. So, if you're constantly surrounded by um, wizards who are of age and they're doing magic, like, the Ministry of Magic would just know there's magic going on in mm-hmm. the house. Mm-hmm. So, it wouldn't be a big deal. Okay. But if, like, you're hairy and you're isolated and then they get, like, a magic tracer from there, they know that it's probably mm-hmm. you. So that that's my follow up would be that how are Fred and George making their uh their Weasley's wizard wheezes? That that would explain it then they're that they can do it because they're surrounded by magic. Right, exactly. Okay. Harry's like, This is the principal the, the chief principal of young wizards, and I'm flouting it. <laughs> right. Um my my only like real complaint, and it's not much of one, is you know, like I, I love how artistic the movie is. It's very tight, even with a lot of like flowing one shots, like the camera's a ghost of its own going from room to room at times. But I mean, of course, you'd like more time with certain characters. I mean, like Fiona Shaw only gets one line, and I think it's Vernon. Um <laughs> Dudley gets no lines at all, which is fine. But like this is a movie where I would have liked a little bit more of uh, Michael Gambon's Dumbledore, you know? Like granted, it's perfect what you get. But I would have liked to see him be a little more, I don't know, present. Granted, I get he's not supposed to be the mentor of this one, but I don't know. It's it's a very strange thing just because you have this brand new Dumbledore. I don't know. Hmm. I think it's I think it's tricky too because I think for for Harry, the idea that Dumbledore is always there, that his presence is a constant in his life, hmm. um, is the thing that makes him feel so safe at Hogwarts. It's like such a huge part of why he's so traumatized by Spoiler alert, losing Dumbledore. <laughs> um, so yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, I think Dumbledore's presence is so hugely important to this story. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, I, I too missed the, well, I didn't miss all of the fighting between Ron and Hermione, but that they could have, I don't, I don't know how you would put more of it in there without totally right. changing the plot, but, um, 
the the one thing I really miss is when Hagrid takes Ron and Harry aside. And I actually I wrote this line of dialogue down because I really liked it. He says, I thought you two'd value your friend more than broomsticks and rats. Uh, yeah. I like that he kind of calls him out on that. Yeah. Uh, and I I would have liked to seen that in the movie because uh, Hagrid I feel like he he kind of annoys me as a character a lot of the time, but he has good moments, and I don't feel like they always get those into the movies. Well, you got the uh, Skipping Stones, I think, which is which is my favorite Hagrid moment so far at all. I mean, like it's it's Robbie Coltrane like really going to do like some serious emotional acting that I, I enjoyed. You know, I mean, he's great as a comedic actor, but that one. It's when the comedian actor can turn that moment and just sink a stone, you know, <laughs> so to speak. I think it, it really makes the the part overall. All right. Well, I yeah. want to talk a little bit about the source material. Uh, sorry, Marco. <laughs> uh, I, I would really like to hear what Heather thinks about this, because one of the big changes between the book and the movie is that Hermione is much kind of bolder and braver and yeah. more aggressive than she <laughs> is in the book. And I have some ideas as to why this might be, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think um, actually in Harry Potter fandom during, like, after this movie came out, the thing that people were the most furious about is that um, Hermione gets Ron's line in mm-hmm. the Shrieking Shack of, if you want to kill him, you'll have to kill us, you know, first. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, that's actually a really huge moment for Ron. And uh, it's really important for his character development. So I think, and people were, like, at the time, even really, really frustrated about. Um, like Hermione taking on that role. Um, and she is a lot more, like, she doesn't really gain the confidence. She has the, like, season, I mean, like, book five confidence in mm-hmm. the third movie already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. several moments where she, you know, like, she steps in front of Ron to defend him against Malfoy. Right. She <laughs> does, you know, steps in front of Harry in the Shrieking Shack. Um I, I I love it. I mean, I, I know that if you're a Ron fan, you probably don't. But uh, to me, it, it works because I think her characters play such a pivotal role in the third act. Like, she's the impetus for the time travel. Right. And so I, I, I almost think you need her to be bolder in this movie to make that time travel part work. Because she has to be... Like, Harry's kind of... He has, like, the internal dramatic arc. He's, you know, looking for confidence. He's doubting himself. And... He's missing his parents. So that's, he's kind of like has the drama on his shoulders. And so Hermione basically becomes like the action star of the movie. She's the one who's kind of driving everything. And so she yeah, has to, think, yeah. And I think also that like, you know, Hermione's actually missing for a good portion of the, of the book because she and Ron are fighting and Harry's hanging out with Ron more. Cause like he's really mad that she got his firebolt taken away and they're like mm-hmm. really, really angry. So she's missing for a, like a chunk of that book. Like they just kind of peripherally see her studying and stuff so it would make sense that if they were you know not going to have emma watson off screen and they're obviously not going to have emma watson off screen a lot um that she would have to kind of step in and share that with ron Mm -hmm. and look i mean you you know i mean kick-ass women yes absolutely (laughs) hermione is one of my all-time favorite characters ever well i have to think i have to think that quran and the writers and whatnot must have figured out like hey we've got something in emma watson here we need to take advantage of this yeah I think by that time it was seemed pretty obvious that she was um, like not just like like a cute little kid actor that mm-hmm. she was gonna you know. I, I love count. the the scene she has in the movie where like when she's like talking shit about uh, Professor Trelawney. Yeah. Um, like Trelawney. Yeah. She uh, she 
she's funny. Like uh, this movie is like really funny and they give her a chance to kind of be sarcastic and more than just like the good girl. So Koron had said he hadn't read the books or seen the first two movies when he got offered this. Is it possible that when he went back and watched Chamber of Secrets, he was like, guys, you took your secret weapon and you stranded her in a bathroom stall in her cat makeup for <laughs> mm-hmm. like half an hour. That has to change. <laughs> um, I did read something interesting where Rowling said that the writing the third book was when she was actually in a really comfortable place since her immediate financial worries were behind her. Right. <laughs> and she could uh, afford food for yeah, her. Yeah, her she wasn't right. like, like homeless and like writing in cafes. Um, right. Also, she said the press attention wasn't too crazy yet at that point. Right. <laughs> mm. um, but I think... I'm assuming that this carries over from the book. You can tell that she loves Lupin. Oh, yeah. Like, it shows. Yeah, one thing we didn't get from the books is, like, a real explanation of the Marauders map and, and the Marauders in general. Uh, Mooney, Wormtail, Patrick, and Prongs. I, I can understand why they didn't, because I think they really wanted you to focus all of the kind of emotional drama on Harry in this movie. Um, so like there's a scene where Lupin is, he's telling Harry about his parents and like just the framing of the shot, Lupin's in the background facing away. So we're only seeing like Harry and Harry's reaction to what he's hearing. It's like, they really want you to like only hear about Harry's parents in relation to like how it makes Harry feel. Mm -hmm. Um, but just as a, a book reader, it'd be nice to get more detail and backstory there. Yeah. Cause like the Marauders are. Like, that's one of the things that I think actually sets this series apart is because it adds, like, the beauty of Harry Potter is that it goes time-wise forever. Like, you, it really feels like, yeah, of course, these these were the people at Hogwarts, and they feel just as real as the kids who are here now. It's mm-hmm. not like there's blank space on either side of the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those reasons is because it's really layered in this, like, story of the Marauders from the third book on. So I actually, it's it, I wish that, as much as I like the scope of this movie in terms of like taking the wizarding world out of Hogwarts and like providing some scope, I, I would have liked some more depth as well. Exactly what you're saying with the Marauders. Mm-hmm. And again, though, I mean, cause this movie is exactly like you guys are saying, it's beautiful because it's so tight and I don't know how you would do that, right. but I, I do love those guys. Mm. Also, there's no Cho Chang or Cedric Diggory in this book. Uh, <laughs> one thing I like that Rowling was good at doing is she would, she's able to introduce a character before they're really going to have an impact on the plot. So she'll like bring in Cedric Diggory, the book before, and then he, you know, has plays a larger role in the next one. Yeah. Like even Sirius Black gets a name check in the first book. Like when Mm -hmm. Hagrid gets his motorcycle. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see. Any other kind of, any other thoughts about the the books that uh, you missed or just find interesting to discuss? Hey, look, I have a couple of notes here. Um, I am, I just feel like Emma Thompson as Trelawney is just the most perfect thing. And I love her so much in, in the books. So I really wish that literally every scene that Trelawney had, like they were also in the movie. Cause I just think that Emma Thompson nails it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do also love to see that animosity between Hermione and Trelawney because Hermione's kind of a jerk about that. Like Hermione's not perfect. And mm-hmm. she, one of the things that is deeply flawed about her is how, dismissive she is of Trelawney. <laughs> so yeah it's like her blind spot is you yeah, know, it's not yeah. in a book right yeah <laughs> all right well uh, let's uh let's just move on to general discussion because i feel like we can talk about all sorts of things i want to throw out this topic just to see what you guys thought um there's a sort of 
I hesitate to use the word intimacy because it's not romantic at all, but there's a physical closeness between the actors, especially Harry and Hermione. It's not romantic, but they're like all over each other. Like she's like, you know, pulling him around by the hand. He's sheltering her kind of like, I, I feel like it, it heightens the story. It's like, this wouldn't be something that would happen in real life, but it, it has that kind of big emotion feel that the books have. I wonder if you guys had any thoughts on that. Uh, I would say I would I would disagree. I would think it's realistic in the sense that, especially knowing where the stories go, and what they hint at here is that she can have that with Harry because there isn't well, there is romantic yeah. tension that she has with Ron. You know what I mean? Like it's like that kind of friendly intimacy that they have so effortlessly. Whereas she accidentally touches Ron's arm at one point, mm -hmm. or purposely touches Ron's arm, looking for comfort when she's scared, and it's like that shot of twilight where they both touch the radio and freak out you know? <laughs> um so yeah i i i felt like that felt real to me and when you have you know guy girl friendships especially especially young ones they don't know i don't know to be to be weird about it yet mm -hmm. or do they i guess i don't know i mean i guess cooties would be a whole different thing in a match <laughs> they'd be real <laughs> true it would be real <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I actually, uh, my thing, I really hate the next movie so much, mm -hmm. Goblet of Fire. I hate it. It's my least favorite of all the movies. And the reason why is because the most important thing about the Harry Potter series is the relationship between Harry, Ron, and Hermione. And it comes through so beautifully in this third movie. And a lot of it is like the physicality with each other. Exactly what you're saying is that desire for all of them to protect each other and love each other and comfort each other. And how that plays out for, you know, like 12 or 13 year olds. When they're just, their hormones are coming to play and they're just figuring out, like, when it's, when that kind of stuff helps and when it doesn't help. And I just love, I, I feel like it just gave this movie such a huge heart. Mm -hmm. Um, I still get butterflies thinking about, um, uh, Harry shielding Hermione at mm. the very end, like, just wrapping his up. Like, he knows, like, mm. he's like, this is it, we're gonna die, but he shields her anyway. Like, I, I don't know, I, I agree with that, yeah. It's like you can imagine yourself like thinking up stories when you were that age and like that's that's the kind of hero move you'd be doing, you know, like it just it feels like just big hero moments that you want from characters of this age. Right. And I and I love that she like in her moment of like Hermione in her moment of just completely being bereft over Buckbeak, she reaches for Ron because mm -hmm. she does, she's not thinking about it in that moment. She's just like looking for comfort and so she reaches for him. Um, and then Harry tries to get in on it. He gets in on that. That's, that's <laughs> one of my favorite scenes. That's such a. I, <laughs> that's always a funny scene. But yeah, I love that. Like I love that part of their relationship because it just feels so true and so real to life. Well, I think it fits too with you know kids on the verge of being teenagers becoming realizing how weird their bodies are. And you have yeah. like an actual werewolf. You have right. a, you have people who turn into animals who spend their like like chunks of their lives as animals, and then you have the whole beginning, which felt like. Roll doll riding Cronenbergian like body horror with like Marge <laughs> blowing up and floating away and how does the TV tropes put thing put it like the the buttons popping off of her outfit with such veracity and force that was so ridiculous that it became necessary to see this in cinema. Um, bodies are weird, and <laughs> I think the movie really captures that. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's like a beautiful thing there that's like. Um, cause like we write off children, we write off these kids cause we don't figure out, they like, they don't know cause they're just little kids, but these guys are figuring it out and they're figuring it out without their parents and they're just figuring it out with each other. And yeah, I love it. 
Yeah, one thing that was kind of funny to watch, like I'm, I, I can only assume that Emma Watson must have had like a growth spurt while they were filming, because there's some shots where she's taller than Rupert Grint. Uh, it's oh, just kind of funny to see, like, like there's one shot in particular where it's where they find the the fat lady's portrait has been messed up, and Dumbledore walks up, and Hermione kind of leans out behind her, him. And I have to assume that, that was filmed like early in the production schedule because she looks way younger than she does in other scenes. Hmm. Now I'm I'm never gonna not be able to notice that now. <laughs> <laughs> I should say, like weather wise, it feels like Quaron finally brought England to these movies. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I mean there's, there's sunny, magical places in the first two movies. And then this one, it's like the one time I was went to England, this is what it looked like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like dark at 3.30 in the afternoon, uh-huh. freezing cold. Yeah. yeah. The Quidditch scene is really cool. It's, it's short, but it might be my favorite of the Quidditch, ma- Quidditch matches just because it's it's all this weather. And I mean, the camera works amazing, too. Well, it really sums up that game to me. It's not just a game where people disappear for months at a time or, you know, there's wanton destruction. There's no referees. But it's like there might also be these like spectral, like soul eating ghosts <laughs> floating around. And th- that's part of the game. Like they don't call a timeout on that or whatever. <laughs> I, I started to wonder, is it like Monopoly where like they never really finish a game of Quidditch? I mean, like how often do they actually catch the snitch? I guess whenever Harry plays, except for this one. But mm-hmm. Dumbledore has to like intercede. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's true. Like Quidditch is like really brutal, and this it seems like such a fun little game in the first two movies. But like you can really get a sense of like, oh, this is truly dangerous, and these children should absolutely not be playing it. <laughs> like, but, but Professor, you can't give us an essay. Quidditch is tomorrow, and so it's just like <laughs> I saved your life, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. Another thing in my notes here that I love, uh, Hermione often calls Ron Ronald. Uh, yes. I feel like that's just a perfect touch because that's exactly what a Hermione would do, mm-hmm. uh, especially when she's like not happy with Ron. She'd call him Ronald. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think for her, that's like putting a little distance between them. Like, I'm not so familiar. I'm not so affectionate. Also, super maternal. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it's yeah. a little Hermione. Ronald, you have some dirt in your nose. Did you know that? <laughs> what else you got, Marco? Oh, that's that's it. Just a uh, completely unnecessary note. Michael Saracen, the cinematographer of this movie, um, who did some visually stunning work, is also a winemaker in his mm. spare time. Really? Yeah, he has his own vineyard. That's an amazing fact. Where in the heck did you find that? I found just on Wikipedia. Amazing. <laughs> One thing I didn't know until I was looking at IMDb is that the guy who plays Lewin, uh, David Thewlis, he also plays Knox Harrington, the video artist in The Big Lebowski, which that's I never nuts. knew. Harrington, the video artist. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, uh, (laughs) Boz over there. (laughs) If only he could have said that to Sirius. Oh, if only. I also really loved uh, after Malfoy like taunts Harry about the Dementor and like pretends there's one behind him. Hermione does this like really funny sneer at him. Oh, yeah, that's just, great. Yeah. That's a great gift. I see that gift everywhere all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's very gifable. Um, I wanted to talk about, did you guys know that J.K. Rowling uh, wrote Dementors as an allegory for depression? Um, and every way that she describes a Dementor is how she has experienced depression in her own life. Interesting. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 
in terms of like being taken over in this moment of like complete darkness and feeling like you'll never feel any kind of cheer again. And even like, though, you know, in your head that, you know, like it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And there are people who love you or whatever, just not being able to feel the truth of that, like in your heart and like this oppressive thing where it does literally feel like it's going to suck out your soul. Um, Yeah. That's how she wrote that. Well, plus I feel like depression is worse for people with a lot of imagination. Oh yeah, absolutely. because you can you can absolutely work against yourself. So like you could be lost in a you know dark pit of your own soul and think you hear somebody screaming and it's you know it's just some aspect of yourself that's, right. <laughs> that you feel like is dying and you'll never feel happy again. Yeah, I mean this the the introduction of the Dementors on the train is just amazing film work right it's there. It's so chilling. It's, it's so yeah, it's so good. It's it's to me that we should be talking about this the same way we talk about the the fucking like water cup on the dash and mm-hmm. Jurassic Park, you know? Right, right, yeah, yeah. I, I read somewhere that originally wanted to, they wanted to do that with like underwater puppets or something like that, but like it it was going to be too expensive. <laughs> but I think they almost do look like they're moving underwater. The there's a way that they flow and the way that their cloaks flow that seems just extremely like creepy and like unnerving. The other ridiculous fact that I just read was that during the production meetings, when Quoron first told the production staff that he, he wanted the, the raindrops to turn into ice, <laughs> and when they show up, they, through his thick accent, they thought he said eyes. <laughs> and so he started getting all these like surreal, like Dolly esque, like uh, drafts, you know, for, for art. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of the depression thing, I think that works with kind of part of Harry's plotline is he's, He's struggling to find confidence and basically everyone just like treats him like, oh, like, look at that wimp. Like he's fainting when the Dementors show up. It's like they clearly like don't respect his tragedy at all. Yeah. Uh, I think that that ties right into the depression thing. It's it's a deflection, though. I mean, Mm -hmm. look at God, look at Draco in this one. He's so much more sniveling. But it's like I really like I want to say it was his Half-Blood Prince where I think you finally see the toll of like his familial abuse at home. Um, the pressure he's under constantly, but God, he's such a like sniveling wimp in this one. And it's, it's so perfect. Like a lot of that, like that bravado is gone, which made me think like, can Tom Felton, is he just not compare with, uh, uh, Jason Isaacs after he showed up like a, like a prancing pony of evilness in, in the second one. I mean, that wig alone, like. And that cane. Yeah. <laughs> He'd never touch anything. He would just touch it with the cane. Yes. He's so like horrifically like aristocratic. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I wanted to get a, a little bit film nerdy and talk about like there's some really excellent like long takes in this. Uh, I think one of the best ones is when they're at uh, the Leaky Cauldron, mm-hmm. and it's it's the, the whole scene where Arthur Weasley takes Harry aside and basically like explains who Sirius is. That's all one shot, and I didn't even realize it till like the fourth time I watched the movie because it's it's so cleverly done. And what's really fun about it is that you see all the other characters in the background are kind of doing what their character should be doing. Like Hermione gets up and goes to talk to Ginny because they're friends, even though we don't really get to see that because Harry never pays attention to that himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like that 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 details included and, you know, Percy's getting uh, like tea in the background, and stuff like that. I really love that shot. Well, and Harry's being again like the it's tangled in front of him the the warmth and the charm of the weasley family that he wants to join and then he's pulled into this like dark corridor to be explained to how horrible the world is for him once more and like you had that shot of uh 
of uh, Sirius Black, the the, the wanted poster. poster. Mm-hmm. It's always like pretty much visible there, like screaming at you. Um, this is before. So, so, so back to the book real quick. Filch's office is at the Leaky Cauldron. Filch. Filch, or uh, what's his name? The guy who oh, runs Fudge. Fudge, sorry, runs the Ministry of Magic. His office is there too. Like it's just an office above a a pub. No, not no. I think he he's just at- there. Okay. Yeah. He's just taken over, like, like space there. Right, 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 yeah. They're all just decamped to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got, like, Harry's books. He's got, like, a little desk. He's got pea soup happening. I was just like, wait a minute. Where is their office space? Didn't we see it in the last one? I didn't think it was. Is everything above a pub in the magical world? <laughs> it truly is magical, then. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, I also just in terms of, like, the sort of film nerdy stuff, I... I Two things I really like about this film are how much darker, like, actually, the, like, less light we have mm-hmm. in this movie than the first two movies. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it really does give a sense of foreboding to both, like, the danger of the Hogwarts grounds and the danger of the magical world and also the danger that's, like, coming, like, the darkness that's coming in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they take it a little too far in the sixth movie, like, half the movie you can't see because it's so dark. But anyway, <laughs> in this movie, I think, I think that's great. And then I really love that there are so many, like, low angle and high angle shots um, at the actors and at the scenery um, because it does feel sort of dissonant and magical and mm-hmm. um, I like I really think that's a nice touch especially compared to Chris Columbus's sort of like you know straight on right. yeah yeah I feel like the the camera in this is I mean it's, you know not to overuse the term but it's magical like the, at one point he takes the camera right through the uh, Boggart mirror cabinet yeah yeah, yeah. Um, he does it twice, and it's like it, it's a magic trick in and of itself. Uh, it's, it's it's amazing to watch what he does with the camera, and it, it it makes the movie feel kind of you know fantastical. Well, I never felt like the special effects ever did anything but aid the movie. They never took me out of the movie yes. like they did in the first one specifically. Um, I was just thinking to another like weird trivia thing I read, but like the only time I feel like I really felt the presence of the sun in this movie was very briefly when Snape is sheltering the children from the werewolf. And like, you get that sense that that it's just rained. Maybe the sun is going to come out. It's kind of like slightly magic hour is ish, but like, uh, Quaron had to go and ask Jake Rowling's permission to put a sundial on (laughs) Hogwarts grounds. And I thought it was funny because you never see the sun. That's amazing that he had, that he had to ask her permission. The only thing that she didn't allow him to do was like show a, a cemetery. Interesting. Mm, mm. I think a cemetery would have made this movie feel too Halloweenish. I mean, there's already those giant pumpkins. I don't think it needed anything else to feel like. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the song that they sing uh, right at the beginning when they get to okay, Hogwarts? I, I love it. I really love it, and I know a lot of people hate it, but like the addition of the Hogwarts choir singing Shakespeare in this mm-hmm. really eerie but also jaunty way mm-hmm. feels like I don't know. I just love it. It sets the tone. Um. I love the frogs. Captures, yeah, the frogs are so great. <laughs> really, I just feel like that captures the spirit of this book so much. Just that one song. Like, it really just puts you in the mindset of what you're getting into. I'd like to think that the frog is actually a student. You know, there's like, like you, you, you train for like alto, soprano, frog. Like, you have to animate just into frog voice or whatever. Well, Heather, maybe you can answer this. So, we know what the owls do. And, and cats are just, you know, cats are cats. 
who doesn't love cats, but like, what is the advantage of having a toad as your pet? So, like, so there actually is no advantage, and that's why uh, Hagrid says that they've gone out of fashion, um, and why <laughs> he says that in the first book they've gone out of fashion because they don't do anything. And it's also why, of course, Neville, poor Neville, is like mm-hmm. the only student you know that ever has a toad, and even his like worthless, unfashionable toad still he can't keep possession over it. He's always <laughs> losing that damn thing. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just like to fill out, fill it out with like a, hmm. sort of a scale of cool to not cool things. And of course, Neville ends <laughs> up with like the least possible cool pet. Um, oh, that makes sense. Going back to this Tosh play real quick. The musical group later on in the series is the Wicked Sisters, right? Weird right, Sisters. Yeah. Like Jarvis Cocker and all them. Okay. Yeah, the the choir there, I, the shot is, I mean, it's another amazing shot because the swoops in on the choir and then they finish right. the song in part and there's Dumbledore walking right up and it's a new Dumbledore. This is Michael Gambone now. Um, and there's just so much confidence. It's like they, they're not going to spend any time trying to get you used to a new Dumbledore. It's like, here he is. And he's kind of, you know, witty and, and funny and a little bit uh, mysterious and they just go right into it. Well, he doesn't even like, like they don't even do like somebody would be like, oh, now Dumbledore will speak, and it's you know, mm-hmm. maybe he looks different. You know, they don't do any of that stuff. He just becomes Dumbledore and starts speaking. I think is interesting. And he's not. I, I like his outfit. I like his fashion as Dumbledore a little bit more than Richard Harris's. Do you though? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it it suits his personality a little it bit does. more it's than a Richard Harris. Edgier. Yeah. Little, yeah. Does he ever actually wear the like the high heel boots that he's described as wearing in the books? I'm, I'm not sure if we ever see that in the movies. We should. We should. I love that detail about him in the books. It's so Dumbledore for him to wear those <laughs> high heel boots. <laughs> how how did you feel about the costumes? I know that was somewhat controversial with uh, them not wearing their robes as often in these later movies. Oh, I don't care about that. You don't care. I, okay. Yeah. Well, I I did think it, it is weird that they make the change like the there's like a like a color scheme change for like the Hogwarts uniforms in right. this third movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. more like a muted. red, yeah. yeah, more reddish than orange. It seems like, right? Um, I think it's interesting because it, it allows them. I don't know. I, I just assume it's like a third year thing. You get to be a little more. You get to develop your own personality, fashion wise. I think Quaron basically told the actors wear your Hogwarts uniform however you would. Um, so some of them look kind of dumpy, <laughs> like less prim and proper like they did in the first two, which, you know, suits like Neville, who the he looks so much different. The actor, like he's the one who I think has changed the most from the previous movie. A lot of times their uniforms look like they've been wearing them all day and they've kind of like loosened right. the tie and unbuttoned and taken off like their robes, something like that. Yeah, it, it seems more like kids would actually look if they had to wear these uniforms. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, there's something I want to talk about. The uh, the wands have a whistling sound effect in this movie. I can't remember if they continue that or not. Um, but like every time they use their wand, there's a kind of little whistle note on the soundtrack. Oh my god, I never noticed that before. That's a great observation. When we get to the uh, if you could change one thing section, hmm. my note is about the wands. Let's let's get to that now. Okay. So the only thing that I would change is I would I would clearly I would add in like three more instances of somebody having to magic a wand out of another wizard's hands. <laughs> Cause that was that was hilarious to me. So every time somebody just like whoop and then like the wand flies out of so and so's hand before they can do anything with it and you get the <gasps> face. I, I think in the books it is like that when they're at the shrieking shack. Like, I, yeah, and it's also like super important that the that's like really important mm-hmm. in the books. 
Yeah. Why can't I remember the... Expelliarmus? Remember. There it is, Expelliarmus. Yeah, it's like a really important... It's a very important theme throughout all the books. So it is weird that they didn't explore that more in this movie. I, I just love it, though. It's so funny to me. I mean, it's like the Western equivalent would be to then, like, shoot around the person's feet, dance, you know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that becomes Harry's signature, like, defensive move. Right. Just dewanding you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's how, like, it's how in the sixth, in the, in the final book, it's how they know who Harry is out of everybody because everybody's, like, shooting to kill, but he's still trying to disarm people. <laughs> oh. and so that's how they know. That's how the uh, Death Eaters know. That. They're like, oh, that's his favorite spell. It's the only one right. he knows. <laughs> right. And ultimately, the spell he uses to defeat. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, so uh, Hagrid is now a professor. Like, we never really found out if he actually finished his education at Hogwarts, right? I don't think he did. I, he I think expelled. that's one of the reasons he's not allowed to use magic. Yeah. Yeah, he's, they took his wand and broke it, so I don't think he ever did finish up. Well, it's, it's not a bad rise, I guess. I mean, if you drop out of school or get expelled and become a professor later on. Yeah. I mean, even uh, Filch isn't isn't a professor. Well, I guess the idea is that since the they kind of figured out what was going on at the Chamber of Secrets, that kind of cleared Hagrid up a bit. Uh, even though he's you know he still had the stupid spider. Um, but now they like knew for sure that he wasn't the one that released the monster. So that I think it's kind of implied that that allowed Dumbledore to make him the the new. Well, just imagine this then. Professor. So the third movie, rather than him becoming like the the animal teacher or what have you, like he just enters the third year alongside them, like like Happy Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> like he keeps like trying to join the gang of Ron and Hermione and Harry. Guys, I can do loads of stuff. <laughs> also, he can buy booze. Yeah. <laughs> Doing his homework down at the pub. <laughs> well, I like the detail of Marge feeding her bulldog uh, brandy. Yes, oh, I she's did. so gross. <laughs> she's... Little more. <laughs> oh, the, the snapping of the fingers. That's like a perfect mannerism for rudeness. Oh, it is. Well, all of the, the British schools that the muggles we hear about like smeltings and smeltings, yeah. St. Brutus's <laughs> <laughs> the school for hopeless cases. Yeah. Yeah. I get loads of beatings there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that. Cause it's like, I think that's the first time we've seen Harry really be like sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Like he's not just like, you know, like happy to be their kid anymore. Like starting to get a little snarky. Good. Good. I mean, at some point he'll he'll realize he doesn't have to clean the plate that the bulldog just licked off the floor. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, a note I made, and I don't know if you guys would agree with this or not. To me, this is the first time I really felt emotionally connected to Harry. Like when he starts screaming, you know, like shut up at, at Marge and then he runs upstairs and looks at the photo of his parents. I, I there was kind of similar imagery in the first two movies, but it, it didn't really land with me ever. But I, I felt like I really was like connecting with Harry in this movie. I feel like it's a perfect combination though though of the the writing, the the filmmaker, you know, the director and like performance. Like Dan Radcliffe is doing really great work here, I think. You know, he's found his niche and he's he's you know, he's he's so much better than he was in the first two. Most of it's just age, but I think all of those things came together in a great way as opposed to maybe, you know, some flaws in the first two. Yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. I think like 
the interesting thing about Harry Potter, one of the reasons I think it's like uh, so universally beloved is because I think that everybody wants to believe that there actually is something very special and magical hidden inside them. Mm-hmm. And that like you're just going about doing your normal stuff and like the world's beating you down, but there actually is something very special um, that sets you apart for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, in the books, it's, I think people make that immediate connection to Harry, even adults, even though the first two books are really juvenile. I think that people make that connection because it's something that we all crave. Mm-hmm. But I agree that it wasn't until a third movie where as a movie character, I was like, Oh, right. Like this is like, I'm like feeling things in my heart for this. Mm-hmm. I felt like a voyeur in the first two films and I felt like I was like in it with him in this movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like uh, later on when he finds out about Sirius being his godfather and he runs out in the, uh, in the invisible cloak and cries, which I also thought it was funny that like Hermione like pulls the cloak off him. It's like, it's clear he's crying, but she's just like, no, nah, I'm just going to pull this cloak off you anyway. <laughs> Even Ron tries to stop her. Like, come on, like give the guy a moment. <laughs> That's not Hermione's game. Yeah. <laughs> I just like the reminder, though, uh, that with his uh, how young he is, though, even amongst the other students, when Fred and George catch him in the invisible mm-hmm. cloak and they're dragging him back, even though you can't see him, to like give him the map. It was such a funny visual because at first I didn't realize what they were doing, just the way they had their elbows out like towards each other, even though I saw the footsteps in the snow. Right. I really love Fred and George in this movie. Uh, I don't love them so much in the next movie. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but... I, they're just fun. I mean, I, I think they function perfectly in this movie as kind of just comic relief, uh, finishing each other's sentences. Poor Fred. Well, I mean, for two guys who I feel like, you know, obviously Hogwarts is their Rushmore. Like, they've deemed that, I mean, they're, they are serial tricksters, but poor Harry needs this map <laughs> more than they do. Right. So, Heather, if you could change one thing about this movie, what would it be? Um, I think. It's so hard because it's such such a great. It's hard. Everything I want to change about it is just stuff I love from the book. Mm-hmm. But as a as a film, it functions so well. Exactly how you know what? No, I have an answer. It's those shrunken heads on the <laughs> night bus. I hate those things so much. I, like J.K. Rowling really liked them. I remember in an interview she was like, "I wish I'd thought of that." And I was like, "Oh no, what? No, they're terrible. They're so terrible. <laughs> I hate those things." What does uh What does Ron say to them? Oh, when they go to the Hogsmeade pub? Yeah. They, they say something like like adults only. I, I can't remember what he says back to him. All right, so the lady who runs, the proprietor of that pub. Um, Madame Rosmerta? Mm-hmm. Is she just the proprietor of the pub? Because she seems to be worthy of like an intelligence briefing <laughs> by the Minister of Magic and like the 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 aide-de-camp of, of Hogwarts, the, the major domo. It's truly one of the biggest failings of the book that info dump where like it's mm. literally it's like fudge hagrid and mcgonagall yeah mm-hmm. and i'm so sure mcgonagall i am so sure where they just like lay out the plot of mm. every single thing like just in that bar to the well like, like are, are, we're going around to like local business owners <laughs> and right. explaining the situation to them <laughs> i mean maybe it's just she's been such a long-term proprietor of the bar that they they feel the need to fill her in i don't know <laughs> 
Well, we know that off screen, a lot of the creeps, you know, come here and like give away dragon eggs and what have you. So <laughs> I just thought you should you should know. <laughs> I mean, I guess they all know her. Like they've probably all been going to that bar for like years and years. <laughs> Everybody has a crush on her in the books. Like Ron has a crush on her. Hagrid has a crush on her. Mm hmm. Let's see. If, if I could change one thing, I guess I would just love if they could throw in a few lines of dialogue explaining who Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs are. That'd um, be nice. That, so that you know, like, oh, Lupin's Mooney, that's why he knew what the map was. And then, so you know what Prongs is, so it makes a little bit more sense when Harry thinks he sees uh, right. his, his father and the, the Patron Patronus. I would also love it if, when Harry, like, casts his big Patronus at the end, it's just a bunch of light, and they don't really show his Patronus running around. Right. I, I wish they could have added that effect in, because I don't, I don't know why they didn't. Like, they showed it the, in the, the first run-through, the kind of time loop, but not the second time. Well, and when I first watched the movie, you know, years ago, I remember thinking, like, what is this kid talking about? His right. dad? Right. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I, love, I love the question of destiny whenever time travel is involved. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like the way Harry has to realize the call at that moment, you know, when he has to stop expecting somebody to come and save them. And he's just like, oh, shit, Hermione, I just realized it was me all along. <laughs> they definitely added in a lot more from the book. Like in the book, it's it's like they they save Buckbeak and then just go hang out basically till the end. There's no like a uh, fight with the, the werewolf. I don't think like they, they threw in kind of more stuff to happen. Like more little kind of like looping time things that like things they have to do to cause events to happen, which I think it, it just worked really well in the movie, like visually to show all these, you know, like her throwing the, the rock inside and uh, almost seeing herself when they're hiding in the woods, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, I, I find the world of Harry Potter like deliriously charming. Um, I really am not shocked at all later how easily the Ministry of Magic has taken over, considering that the, the chief guy is sweating like a horse bird needing to be executed. Like, <laughs> I mean, he's really getting involved. Like, like we gotta, we gotta come and watch this, this bird get executed. It's a thing. It's gotta happen. I've gotta do it. I don't have like an underling or, you know, <laughs> I've got like an executioner. I have to witness this for some reason. I love Dumbledore stalling with like, I really think I should sign too. Uh, it's quite a long name. You know, I love, I love all that. But then it's like, once it's clear that Buckbeat's gone, they're just like, yeah, case closed, whatever. You know, like I kept thinking like, what happens to Buckbeak now? Are like people going to be hunting him down? Like like whatever the animal version of Dementors are, are they going to be chasing after him? Is he just going to go live with like the the centaurs in the dark forest? But they're just like, eh. That is that is true. Meh. <laughs> Back to the pub. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know it's funny too because uh, Madame Rosmerta turns out to be like Imperio cursed later on. Right. So they they really shouldn't have been spilling anything in front of her. That's <laughs> true. All right. Well, let's go into uh, just kind of like character power rankings here. I don't know uh, if you made any of these, Heather. Uh, I did. You did. Well, what is your number one? I have a feeling I know what it is, but <laughs> it's gonna be Hermione Granger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love Hermione in this movie. She's so great. Uh, yeah, What's she's y'all's number one. She's mine as well. Um, she's just so full of like energy and emotion. Like I the bit where ron gets his rat back and she's like you know i, I deserve an apology and ron basically is just like you know bratty to her and she's like i meant me like i love the way she yells <laughs> at him about that yeah yeah i mean i had hermione i 
for the longest time, I kept putting Harry because, I, like you said, I really finally got into Harry's story. And I feel like he dominated the story much more in this one. But I still put Hermione just because <laughs> she's just like, gotcha, Dumbledore. We need to do some time <laughs> travel, Harry. And I was just like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> to the point, Harry just follows her for like a good five minutes before he even realizes what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's why they had to kind of make her a little bolder, you know, ahead of schedule in this movie is because she does drive so much of the plot in the third act that it would be strange. Otherwise, if she'd been a little like meeker and less aggressive previously, like how would be, she be ordering Harry around so much at the end? Also, so, you know, for like boys growing up, girls maturing is like uh, just an eternal mystery to us. Like suddenly, you know, things are different than they were like like last year at school or what have you. Would Hermione be like months older than them? That's correct. She is just a couple months older than them. I mean, just like mm-hmm. habitual time travel over the course of the year. I mean, she her body would have just aged so much yeah. more than them, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> that, that explains her growth spurt. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I did really love how subtle they dealt with her just like showing up to class like just like really easy camera tricks like you know it's like cut away cut back and there's Hermione yeah tucking the thing into her shirt tucking mm-hmm. the time to her shirt well and and of course Ron you know as much as he tries to you know be aloof is the only one who notices he's not dialed into her I think and she just keeps like treating him like he's stupid <laughs> yeah. yeah like what are you talking about Ron their marriage is gonna be fantastic all right uh heather what's your number two power ranking my my number two power ranking character is the character of hogwarts in this movie (laughs) it really kicks ass in so many ways yeah it feels more alive and also i think we we see like the bridge for the first time yeah that's a great courtyard Mm -hmm. well i love that courtyard that courtyard and the the uh the clock thing that keeps like rotating mm-hmm. back and forth. You have to like pass under. I love that. All right. Uh, I took Harry as my number two. Um, I don't know. I just, I like Harry in this movie. I feel like I connect with him in, in ways that I didn't in other movies. Um, he's, he's less of a jerk than he is at some points. Like sometimes in the books, he kind of annoys me just cause he's, he just like a lot of times he'll just go along with whatever Ron wants, even though Ron's being kind of a dick. So I like that he was, just a little more introspective in this movie. Yeah, I picked Harry because he's he's tougher, he's angry, he's more focused. Um, he does they do that thing of him which is great for any fictional character where he can be two things at one time. You know, he finally gets to be sassy in the beginning, but like the magical revenge he takes on Vernon's sister would be incredibly cruel if it weren't <laughs> so incredibly funny. You know what I mean? And so it's like for me to like side of Harry while also thinking like, man, that is fucked up. Like. I know, that's that was the start of I think of Harry finally inhabiting a place that I I, I could align myself with much more than the previous two. All right, uh, Heather, I think you're next. So my number three is Harry, <laughs> and it's because um, like I, one of the themes throughout all the movies is Harry trying to figure out how to control his emotions because his magic is so emotional, mm-hmm. and so um, he had I think he has this great growth in the beginning where. He's like screaming at Aunt Marge to shut up and then he like blows her up because he's like so angry and he's just like so full of rage. And so, um, like the normal reaction would be like to, you know, like you have to just stomp that out. You have to stomp out all your emotions, but he has to figure out actually a way to control his emotions because without his emotions, he can never 
like create a real Patronus. And like, it's that, it's that powerful feeling and that powerful love that he has that allows him to do what he does at the end of the book. Um, but it's literally the same thing. He's just learning how to control it from like one point in the story to the other point in the story. So he's mm. my number three. Yeah, it's almost like he's he's taking his kind of like his anger and his hurt and realizing what it comes from and then focusing right, exactly. on those emotions instead. Yeah. Well, and I think I talked about a little bit in our last episode. Like other stories, I think, would have started painting that thread like, Harry, you need to watch out. You could become a dark wizard, too. Because of all of your, you know, your emotional blender there, like, right. but they don't do that. Like they, they kind of show that, like all of that—the good and the bad, the hurt and the joy—it's all Harry. It's all the package that makes him, you know, special and lightning scarred and what have you. I think my number three, or number three, is mm-hmm. uh, Lupin. Yeah, uh, I had him too. Number three, Harry's like first real like like mentor who's interacting with him, not just kind of giving him uh like sermons to then go learn from he's he's a weird guy who's cool and he's weird because he's a bit of an outsider which is possibly why he's such a great great teacher um especially the harry yeah and i just thought i thought david thewlis like i don't feel like he's the conventional casting for this role and i think all of that works for me i also thought it's interesting that lupin is definitely a mentor to Harry, but it almost seems like he resists becoming a true father figure for Harry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, like he, he hesitates. I know in the book, there's like one bit where it's like, he's going to put his hand on Harry's shoulder and then he like pulls it back. Like it's like, he doesn't want to take Harry's real father away. Uh, right. He doesn't, he doesn't want to fill that role. Um, but he is, it, he's like somewhere between a mentor and a friend to Harry. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting place for him to exist, but yeah, I really like Lupin. Yeah, Lupin's my number four. <laughs> and it's the same. It's like, like this guy's had the worst possible life through no fault of his own. Like, he something terrible happened to him. And he survived it. And then he had to live with the repercussions of it. And, I mean, it could have destroyed him. It could literally have destroyed him. It could have turned him so resentful and so um, just hard. But there's something so alive and so, and he lost his best friends. He lost all mm-hmm. of his best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but there's still something so alive and something so loving in him, uh, which I think is really wonderful. He mastered the dark parts of himself. And um, like, I think that Snape and Lupin are a really good juxtaposition because they had very similar experiences. And I know that Snape is ultimately, you know, he's a hero, but he's also a real asshole and he's abusive yeah. to these kids and he's not a good teacher. He's a really smart guy, but he's a bad teacher. Um, but Lupin goes through very similar stuff and he actually is very good. He's a very good teacher and he has a very good heart and he finds a like way to forgive too. So he's, yeah, he's mm-hmm. my number four. You could make the argument that Snape is surviving, but like Lupin is thriving. To right. The of his abilities. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he has some really interesting reactions. Like when Harry's talking about how uh, he he hears his parents like being murdered, basically, and you can tell that that really hits Lupin, but he kind of keeps it to himself. Right. Um, he it's, he's kind of like an interesting character. You know, you can kind of form your own headcanon for him in the background, like what's going on in his mind. Yay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. It's just like. Everything, the books and the movies, so much is filtered through Harry that you you just kind of wonder, like, what's what's Lupin really thinking right now? You know, like, what's Ginny up to right now? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, do we all have serious necks? I'm just curious. I I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Okay. Uh, so me and Marco have serious. Um, I don't know. He's minimal screen time, but I feel like he makes an impact. I I really like the way he's introduced versus just like this silent screaming caricature, and you you see him that way for the first two thirds of the movie, and then he finally shows up. And I mean, of course, he has to offer to let Harry stay of him to give Harry that, that dangled hope of freedom. Oh, Dursley's yeah. only to be snatched away. But I still felt like that's a bit quick after 12 years of being in this strange prison designed to drive you mad. I feel like the last thing I'd want to do is like foster a child, especially <laughs> if I can't stop obsessing about how he looks like his dad of his, of his mother's eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be like Harry a year from now <laughs> after I've traveled the world a bit, you know, taking care of some things that haven't been taken care of then i'm going to come back <laughs> and you got a place to stay kid <laughs> needs to go see madame rosmerta <laughs> well, who do you uh, have heather i just want to say about sirius that i think that um his i don't think he views his role in harry's life as paternalistic i think for the entire series of books that he's just this is a very unpopular opinion i'm mm. gonna be hated for it i think he's just trying to keep his relationship with James alive through Harry. Mm. And I think, and so I don't think that's actually, I don't think that he does have like a, I don't think he feels a paternal instinct over Harry, but I know that most people do. So um, I, I can see oh, that. I can see them like, like, like later on in the series, they're so excited to have like their gang back together, like getting together and like plotting schemes and stuff. Yeah. But it's like, you can tell that like, like a lot of the, like, how are we going to fight Dumbledore guys is, is very akin to like, also let's go on a bit of a bender. Mm-hmm. Who's doing a beer run. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely there in the books. I mean, Hermione basically calls him out on it at one point. <laughs> yeah. Um. So my, my number five is Bucky. Nice. Yeah. Because he gets the first punch in on Malfoy. <laughs> uh, he cheats death. Uh, and then he gets, like, he's just totally free. He's like the hero, the vehicle of mm-hmm. heroism. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they did a good job with Buckbeak. Like, the, the Hagrid, like, in every book, it seems like he has, like, some monster he's obsessed with that, like, just causes trouble. Right. And, like... Like with the dragon and with Aragog, the spider is just like, oh God, Hagrid, like why, why, <laughs> you know, but Buckbeak, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm bought into it, you know, it's like, yeah, I can see why you'd want to rescue Buckbeak. Well, they do right. a great job of making this a real animal character with a personality, you know, even though it's, it's, I mean, think about this, like trying to have this debate with like, like CGI creatures like Jar Jar 10 <laughs> years ago or whatever. <laughs> but like, I feel like in the Hippogriff version of this movie, like, when the two of them are flying at Buckbeak there towards the end, like he just throws them off midair and then <laughs> soars a little higher to the clouds and like the music rises and that's the end of the hippogriff version of the movie. Like Buckbeak's free. <laughs> that's kind of dark. <laughs> it's pretty dark. <laughs> Let's see. Um, I don't know how many ranked. Uh, my next one is Dumbledore. Just even though he has like like barely any scenes, I feel like he's excellent in all of them. Especially his uh, did what at the end. I love that. It's like my favorite moment. <laughs> uh, I actually have Snape next. Just because he's so meticulous but snippy at the same time. And he just he's Alan Rickman. He just he just runs in and like shuts all the shutters with his wand. I mean, he just he commands the scene. I feel like that's in Alan Rickman's contract. I have to do something crazy to take over the scene when I first enter the room. You know, people can like lightning bolt me out of the scene after that, but I have to like dominate the scene in my entrance. 
Yeah, I agree. Snape's my next guy, too. I think he's just fabulous in this movie. He's the one character in these movies that just... I don't even see Alan Rickman. I just see Snape. Like It's, yeah. like, it's like he was born to play this role. He just ex- can't, you know, existed fully formed suddenly. It's like Snape is a real person. True. It was weird. A few months ago, Benji and I sat down and watched or rewatched the Robin Hood movie of Kevin Costner. <laughs> I love that Prince of Thieves. I love yeah. that movie. Oh, part of me was born in my first viewing of that movie. I feel like the idea that Kevin Costner and Christian Slater can be British heroes. <laughs> big- <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Uh, that was your cupboard under the stairs moment where you're like, there's ex- something special about me. Exactly, exactly. But just rewatching that, I was like, that's Snape. <laughs> wow, as the sheriff. I just, it blew my mind. Because I hadn't seen it in so many years. Um, my next one is The Dementors. And I'll sum up The Dementors on screen like this. Honestly, shouldn't Quorn have directed Lord of the Rings? Oh, that would have been amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, just based on these characters alone, he would have been so good with the, that trilogy. They do have like a ring rates quality, yeah. But better. <laughs> and he could have done a Hobbit movie in 90 minutes like any normal person. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> man. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut on that because I'd, I'd, I'd rant for days and days. <laughs> yeah. I would love a Koran Hobbit movie. Oh, totally off topic. Um, So, Wormtail. Are we to assume that he never transformed back into a human for 12 years? I mean, doesn't that seem so cramped? I like- feel like he'd he'd have lost his mind. Also, like, having to watch Ron all the time oh, seems yeah. like it would really mess you up. Well, and then there's the joke of uh, Fred and George, like, never mentioning to Harry that he's in bed with Peter Pettigrew constantly. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, the rest of my who I have next. I have Ed Snape, and then I had Fred and George. Um, just, they're they're fun. I don't know. I have nothing in particular to say to them. I just feel like they... They were portrayed exactly as you'd want them to be, just like kind of the sneaky older brothers who aren't really the main characters but fulfill a role. So I have a number seven, and then I have eight and nine are blank, and then my tenth one, which I don't need to talk about, is Draco. But <laughs> for seven, I had a tie between Buckbeak and the Whomping Willow. Mm, just because the Whomping Willow is so good about showing you the seasons and it's it's never better than just the one where it just it just flicks off all its leaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, yeah, it's fall. Okay, <laughs> awesome. I, and I love the I love the depiction of that tree so much better in this movie than in the second one. It's a great framing device. It's perfect. It's perfect yeah. as a framing device for this whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. On all side, it had to be a little bit difficult to structure a movie around like an entire year has to pass right. each time. Mm-hmm. And somehow fit that into like a three act structure. Well, I don't think you you really know where this one ends in the school year, but it felt more naturalistic to me than the the end of the second one we talked about, where they just shrug off like, "Oh, guess what? Final exams are canceled." (laughs) That's just because Harry's like the luckiest kid ever. He's like constantly getting out of having to do. Yeah, that Harry Potter. What a lucky kid! (laughs) Nothing ever went wrong in that guy's life. Well, you know the one thing. (laughs) Just that one thing. I mean, how many times does he get out of the school exams? I think, like, at least three times. Oh, yeah. He doesn't even have to do any schoolwork at all, like a Goblet of Fire. Yeah, yeah. Like, Hermione is more than doubling up with the aid of, like, you know, mastering space and time in this one. Yep. 
Well, that was kind of the other thing they excised from the books is like Hermione was slowly losing her mind, like trying to go to all those classes at once. And then, and then she, with Ron and, and Harry being like total dicks to her too. And in the meantime, she was also working on a defense for Buckbeak against mm-hmm. the Ministry of Magic. So she had like <laughs> taken that on as well. <laughs> Magical lawyer. So I, I noticed that none of us have Ron anywhere in our uh, no, power rankings. In your fucking place, Ron. How do you feel <laughs> about Ron, Heather? I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on him as a character. I really love Ron, and I think that it's like a very unpopular opinion amongst lesbians. Like, I didn't really know that. And, hmm. like, the more I've been, like, the more lesbians I talk to, the more <laughs> people just kind of hate him. And I think it's like they feel like he doesn't deserve Hermione, but, like, hmm. who deserves Hermione? Who among True. us deserves Hermione? Seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely had oh, that sorry, feeling. My girlfriend just my girlfriend just said Luna. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I love Ron. I think he provides a uh, real heart and a sense of like. I think Harry would have gone crazy, like gone absolutely, literally crazy without Ron, because Ron is a guy who allowed him some space to like play Quidditch and to like you know laugh and uh, like Ron is petulant and he is more immature than the rest of these guys but like harry and hermione grew up really really fast Mm. and um i don't know i just really love ron and i was a huge ron and hermione shipper (laughs) uh most people i know were harry i'm harry and hermione shippers uh but i really really like ron what do you guys think about it i guess for me it was like ron like i don't feel like you've earned it yet uh, with with him and Hermione like he's just such a jerk to her constantly um, it's like I'm rereading Goblet of Fire right now and he's such a dick in that oh, book he is. he is so bad in that book and it it, it really just kind of seems I, I can see why a lot of people wouldn't like him and Hermione just because it, it it seems like he he has to be aware on some level that Hermione likes him but it's like he he would rather just like know that and still chase other girls, but just like feel comfortable in the fact that like Hermione's there for him. I guess that's kind of how I read his character sometimes. Maybe 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 not. Maybe he's just clueless and he just doesn't seem <laughs> to understand he, it. I think he is clueless because and, and you know like once Hermione figures it out, she's like, all right, I'm just gonna be with Crumb, so deal with it. <laughs> uh, and he still doesn't even know why he's upset. Like he's so angry and he is horrible to his hmm. date. And he doesn't even know why. Yeah, maybe he, he really does have no clue about it. Like, even when she's just like, you know, like, why, next time ask me out, you know, first rather than like waiting to the last minute. And it's like maybe something sort of clicks, but not entirely. Yeah, he's like, he's like, what is she even talking about? Mm-hmm. I I think the key word or the key phrase really means he hasn't earned it yet. Like, at times I feel like he's going for like his version of like a Han Solo charm. <laughs> that he has not earned yet. Like, he's not Harrison Ford. You know what I mean? Like, if Hermione ever breaks down and says, but Ron, I love you. If he said, I know, I would, like, strangle him. With my hair <laughs> Me too. I would go right through the book or television. Yeah. To deal the blow. But, I mean, like, I don't, I guess I, I've made peace with this is the story. Like, it's going to be Ron and Hermione. And you really see it, like, rewatching these movies, how it's it's been laid out for you there. And then the, watching his movies, you also see how I feel like my, my fan theory is that David Heyman <laughs> wants Harry and Hermione to get together. And he's just trying to subvert that slightly. Or Steve Cloves, maybe. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think that's, there's always been a theory that Steve Cloves was secretly <laughs> like putting that on the screen. She is his favorite character, so it would make sense. I don't know. I mean, I like Harry and Ginny. So I, 
I, I can see wanting Harry to get with Hermione just because it's like he's more like the heroic type or whatever. But I, I, I do like him and Ginny, even though Ginny is like a non-entity in the movies almost. Oh, yeah, she's. Yeah, but it makes sense. I mean, you know, from the very beginning, Harry felt like a connection to this family. So, of course, while he's figuring himself out, figuring out his connection to the Weasley family, you know, that kind of rapport would eventually grow between him and Ginny. Well, Ginny had a plan, like, right from the start. I think, like, she had a, a seven-year plan, and, and she executed it. She did. She definitely did. You know, as, as Ella says to Arya, she's just going after what she wants. Mm-hmm. Some guys like that. <laughs> as Ella says. I just like to imagine the conversations that Ginny and Hermione have about Ron and Harry and just how stupid they are. <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, I think that about covers it. Any uh, final thoughts, Heather? Um, No, you guys covered everything. I just want to say I've just never heard two men before say that they didn't feel like uh, Ron deserved Hermione. It warmed my heart up. Really? <laughs> to hear you say that. I don't, I've just never heard. I think a lot of men that I know project themselves onto Ron and they just, so they assume like, well, yeah, of course they'll be together. But to hear you guys say that just made me feel really nice. That's funny. You know, I, I have a female friend who like Ron is her character, which like has always baffled me. I'm like, Ron? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like reading this and, and being a guy, like it kind of just by default identify with Harry because, you know, everybody wants to be Harry. Sure. Yeah. Ron, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Oh yeah, so I, I wanted to throw out some some British actors. Oh yeah, and see if you guys where would you would place them on the like, uh, Hogwarts faculty. Okay. Now I think Heather, you probably will know most of them. Uh, Benji, there's probably only one or two that you won't know. Okay. I'm gonna go with the most topical. I think so far, Idris Elba. Oh. Ooh. Uh, Heather, just, you go first. I feel like it has to be Defense Against the Dark Arts because he is such a strong, imposing guy. Mm-hmm. Um. And I actually feel like he's strong enough to like stand up underneath that curse. Like I think he could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he feels really like a defense against the dark arts guy. Okay, Helen Mirren. So do we have to do like a real character or just like what subject they would teach? Probably just what subject they would teach. Okay, because I mean we we could be here. Because I was gonna say like like we never really see like Professor uh, Sinistra or Vector. Like I feel like Idris Elba could play one. Oh, of right. Them. Okay. Um, yeah, Heather Helen Mirren. Uh, definitely going to say uh, Headmaster of Hogwarts. I was just going to say, do they ever tell you after Deathly Hallows who the Headmaster is? Like when, when Harry Jr. or uh, is it James Potter Jr. or whatever? Mm-hmm. Harry's son, when he goes to school on his first day, like, who is the Headmaster then? I don't think we ever know. I, I remember after the books came out, people asking if it was McGonagall and J.K. Rowling saying she was probably a little too old and too tired to uh, continue on in that post. So I don't think we know. Okay. So this person's already found another magical leaning, but just in case they hadn't, Tilda Swinton. <laughs> oh, uh, she would, she'd be a good uh, uh, divination. Yeah, teacher. I was going to say exactly the same yeah. thing, divination. I feel like Tilda Swinton just goes into the future and asks herself. Mm-hmm. The <laughs> um, Ewan McGregor. Oh, man. There's someone who could have played uh, Lockhart. <laughs> That's like the first thing I thought of when I thought of Ewan McGregor as a oh, Gilderoy Lockhart. He would be great, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kaya Scodelario. Yeah. Ooh, I don't know that um, that's a great one. For you, Benji, she was in. She was the girl in the Maze Runner. The young girl. Well, the only other girl, I think. 
Oh, yeah. All right. I'm going to have to Google this. Okay. <laughs> I think her. Transfiguration, there's something really cat-like about her to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want her to, like, at some point, just turn to the camera and start speaking to us. Mm. <laughs> I would not say no. Uh, just tell us that she oh, was Oh, she was on backwards. Skins. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was born backwards. What? Nothing. Blind okay. Skins. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, it's true. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Did you find her look? What do you think? Uh, yeah, um, she seems young, like like head girl, maybe. I don't know. I, she seems too young to be a professor. Then what house? Uh, that's that's rough. Slytherin. Based on appearance, what house would you? Yeah, Slytherin. Based on skin, I would also put her Slytherin. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Ian McShane. Ooh, I'm gonna say defense against the dark arts. Hmm. Should we tell Ezio for? Why well, I, I see like Minister of Magic for him. Yep. That'd be a good one. Uh, this one is like, this is like a no-brainer Harry Potter casting to me. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Jeremy Irons with his Boris Karloff voice. He does have a Boris Karloff voice. That's amazing. <laughs> he should re- he should redo the Grinch song. He should do a cover. <laughs> <laughs> it would just be the same song that we would never know. It's true. It's totally true. Um, I like him as like a Lucius Malfoy type character. Hmm. Yeah, I get him and J- uh, Jason Isaacs mixed up all the time, so <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bill Nye. <laughs> he's he's uh he's in it, isn't he? Is he in there? Isn't he? Oh, he's, doesn't he's he the play the one. the minister? Yeah, he's in, in, the last in Deathly one. Hallows. Oh, you're right. The completely um, awkward opening of Deathly Hallows Part One, where he's like giving a weird speech. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so last two. Ben Kingsley. Mm. Ancient uh, Runes. Oh, that's great. Ancient Runes is perfect for him. History of Magic or Ancient Runes. That's awesome. Okay, actually, last last two here. Alex Kingston. <gasps> she plays the role of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to teach the kids about the subject of Heather from the internet. I can see her... <laughs> Relations, if you know what I mean. Uh, that's a 70-year class. Um, the, last, <laughs> the last one, Judy Dench. Um, I feel like it's another headmaster. She's another headmaster. Okay. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see her take over from Ray Fiennes as like a villainous character. Yeah, it'd be great. You know, kind of vice versa, like the Bond movies. Without a nose. Yeah, without a nose. Oh. How would she smell? <laughs> And on that note, I think this is a good place to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, I really want to thank you for joining us, Heather. Where can people find you on the internet? They can find me at autostraddle.com or on Twitter at hpogie, H-O-A-G-I-E. Excellent. Uh, You can find us, what are we, Marco? Uh, Headcanon Pod, I believe, on on the Twitters. All right, awesome. Uh, We'll be back next time to be talking about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you.